Chapter 4, Part A Women of America by John Roos Laris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, Part A The Period of Settlement. We have now reached the point in our consideration of the women of our own land where we are free to turn to the story of the american woman as she is generally known the woman of the united states of course scientific ethnology recognizes no such nomenclature giving the title of american only to the aborigines of this continent but we who write and read this work are not concerned to be scientific but rather perspicacious on the one side and perspicuous on the other and the generally accepted nomenclature will be adopted here and the woman of the united states and the mother colonies spoken of as being by right as well as acceptation the american woman to all other lands and ages before entering upon the history of the woman of our country it seems needful to cast a glance upon some general conditions which must be reckoned with in our estimate and appreciation of the women of America and their history. As a preliminary, the story of the Blue Fairy will be related, a story so old that it may be new to most of the readers of this volume, and which, fairy story though it be, has yet a meaning in the study of the history of women, if we will but seek it out. Here is the story as told by Stahl. One day the Blue Fairy descended to earth with the courteous intention of distributing to all the young girls of the different nations the treasures of beauty that she brought with her. Her dwarf, Amaranth, sounded his horn and instantly a young girl of every nation presented herself at the foot of the blue fairy's throne. Then, after having made a short speech, she proceeded to distribute her gifts. She gave to the young girl who represented all the Castiles locks so black and long that she could make a mantilla of them. To the Italian she gave eyes as bright and burning as an eruption of Vesuvius in the middle of the night. To the Turkish girl, a figure as round as the moon and as soft as eiderdown. To the English girl, an aurora borealis to tint her cheeks, her lips, and her shoulders. To the German, teeth like her own and a tender heart. To the Russian, the dignity of a queen. Then, going into details, she put gaiety on the lips of the Neapolitan, wit in the brain of the Irish girl, good sense in the heart of the Flemish girl, and when nothing remained to be given, she arose to take her flight. And I, said the Parisian to her, detaining her by the floating border of her tunic. I had forgotten you, entirely forgotten, madame. I overlooked you, but what can I do? My bag of gifts is empty. She reflected an instant, and then called around her the recipients of her gifts, told them the situation, 
and asked them to share their treasures with their unfortunate sister. Who could refuse a fairy, and above all, the blue fairy? So, with the graciousness always conferred by happiness, these girls in turn approached the neglected Parisian, and, as they passed her, one threw her part of her black hair, another a tint of her rosy complexion, this one a beam of her joyousness, that one a touch of her sensibility, and thus it came about that the Parisian, so poor, so obscure, so eclipsed by her sisters, found herself in an instant, by this generous division, richer and more attractively endowed than any of her companions. Now this charming little parable is by courtesy true of the Parisienne, but it is far truer of the American woman, for of her it might have been written as a parable indeed. The product of no one blood, no isolated race, she has been given by the fusion of variant races in her ancestry, an origin and a tradition, both physical and mental, such has been granted to no other woman of whom history tells us. Into the ancestry of the English woman entered the elements of the Celtic blood, Rythonic and Goidal, of the Saxons and Teutons, and the latter Normans and even Provencals, while through all, perhaps, ran the strain of the primitive Briton and Pict. But not even in this mingling of the races can she compare with her American sister in diversity of racial source. Moreover, the English stock, which we unite in calling incorrectly the Anglo-Saxon, has remained permanent in type and fount. But this is not so with the American. This latter is in constant process of modification by the introduction of new progenital elements, and it cannot now be prophesied when there will be a clearly defined race, with individual and permanent characteristics, established upon this side of the great seas. Therefore the American woman is the heir of the ages, in a sense never before true of anyone else. As with the Parisian in the story, so with the American woman in truth, all races have united in bringing her of their best gifts. It is for her to make of these the best that she may. Certainly none of her sisters has ever begun her career with such fortune brought her by destiny as a birth gift. It must not, however, be forgotten or unnoted that, while the American woman is thus rich in a heritage unequalled by that granted to any of her sisters, being world heir instead of heir to a race, she has some corresponding disadvantages to overcome in her effort to influence as a racial representative the currents of world thought and world progress. She has behind her no national tradition stretching far back into a past so remote that it has ceased to be effect and has become merely foundation. The American woman, alone of all the representatives of the higher cultures, has no effective nationality to shape her trend. She is a product of her time only, not of time and ancient tradition mingled, 
she has no distinct nationality of growth and line of progress. Every other woman of Caucasian race has a past to which to refer as inspiration and cause, a past which is a story of upward growth, of ever-increasing culture. The American woman found her culture ready for her, was already, at her birth, the child and expression of the highest civilization known to her day. She had no need of exerting formative influence upon her race. All was already done to her hand. Thus she lacks the greatest of all traditions, the tradition of growth and development. Yet, though not of native production, though lacking the influence of constant trending nationality, the American woman is, and always has been, strongly individual. While she is not an indigenous development, not a result of racial growth and broadening, yet her development has been essentially characteristic. She has reached forward upon lines of variant trend from those of her sisters of other cultures, and she is truly a product of her country in that she has been shaped by the conditions of the time and circumstances of that country's birth. There was breathed into her from the first the informing spirit of the typical American civilization, the spirit of freedom. And into her nature has also come another spirit distinctively American, the spirit of the wilderness subdued and conquered, of a barren land made to yield its treasures to the arm of the pioneers, the spirit of conquest. There is no new gift of mind or soul brought to her by other nations that has not been modified by these twin spirits. Thus, though heir to all nations and peoples, the product of all cultures, she remains typically American in dominant traits, in the path in which she has chosen to set her feet. Latin and Teuton, Slav and Celt, she has in her veins the blood of them all, but she is still less their result than their modification, and she is still the child of America, even more than of the world which has given her life. The conditions under which the northern continent of America was first settled were somewhat peculiar as contrasted with those of any other settlement whose full history we know. It was entirely different, for example, from the settlement of South America or Mexico. In both the latter cases there was what may be described as a blow and a victory. There was a conquest over a primitive even if remarkably civilized people, and that was the end of the matter, save for the mere formal colonization which followed. This was not the case with the colonization of North America. There was no overt or complete conquest. On the contrary, there was at first overture of peace between the inhabitants of the country and the newcomers. This did not last, the whole of the first history of the colonization of North America may be summed up, at least in its most prominent aspect, in one word, war. But this warfare was not decisive. It was not waged against a nation, but against nations, fighting individually and jealously of each other indeed, 
else they must have prevailed at first, but yet constantly bringing forward new disputants of the title of the newcomers to the land. The country had to be won from its original owners step by step, not by one or many blows. The process of reclamation was by a steady pushing back of the aborigines, not by a conquest such as that of Norman over Saxon, or even Englishmen over Maori. There was no conquered race to become eventually amalgamated with its conquerors. The history of all the first period of settlement is the history of civilization driving barbarism before it as it marched on. But for such methods, there was need of a somewhat peculiar and very strenuous civilization. The desired result was not to be won by any graces or abstractions, but by the prevailing of white stamina, bravery, and ingenuity over red cunning and tradition and honesty, of the axe over the tomahawk, of the rifle over the bow. It was the triumph of the knowledge rather than the principles belonging to a higher culture than that which was going down. It was Friar Bacon with his gunpowder, not Francis Bacon with his learning, who was fighting the battle of the white against the red, and was affecting the progress of the world. In conditions arising from strife, woman has but little place. She may indeed be present, and even be a part of the conditions which are inevitable in times of conquest. But she is there only as an accident, not as a requisite. The elimination of the influence of woman from the trend of present civilization would be fatal to all approach to any worthy goal. But in the time of the beginnings of our country's story, woman was a hindrance rather than a help to progress since by her presence and the consequent anxiety and by her weakness and physical prowess she enfeebled the fighting powers of the garrison or village even so she had her part and an honourable one in the events which established white dominance in america but it was one that was necessarily subordinate in the eyes of the chroniclers of those times and so we hear but little of women in the flush of our country's dawn. It is not to be questioned that in the first colonies planted by England in the New World there were women, perhaps nearly as many as men. We are apt to forget, by the way, that Virginia was originally settled by the Spaniards under Menendez, the perpetrator of the terrible massacre in Florida, by which his name is best remembered, and that the Latin races, both Spanish and French, long anticipated the English in colonization of our country. It is quite certain that in all these early Latin colonies there were women, and that these bore no inconsiderable part in the events which were trending, though sometimes by devious paths, to the establishment of Caucasian Empire in America but their names are unknown to us, and we are even ignorant of their place in the history of their time. The story of southern settlement, as far as this has any effect upon the present, begins for us with the settlement of Roanoke Island 
by Sir Walter Raleigh's ill-fated colony. The tale of its mysterious disappearance is too well known to call for recapitulation here, but before that sudden and final ending of its story, we have chronicles which tell us that among these pioneer pilgrims were women, mostly wives of the men settlers, who bore their part in the burden and heat of the day, and those days were toilsome and full of peril, as well as their more active lords. Also to that lost colony belongs the honor of having reared the first alien child born on American soil, the forerunner of the race that was to make the soil its own, Virginia Dare, the little maiden whose passing was as mysterious as her coming was ominous. The first of the enormous army of the conquering pale-faces who were to overrun the land like locusts, she passed away into the mysterious silence of the woods as the standard-bearer of the advance, leaving her name to be a shadowy record for all future ages, and the very embodiment of the spirit of romance that was in the story of the subjugation of America. Had she lived the normal life of the woman pioneer, her memory would have lacked something of romance, but her unknown fate and her position in the van of the great coming nation of Americans kept her in remembrance. Jamestown was founded on May 13, 1607, and with its foundation began the real era of English rule in America. We know but little of the place of woman in the first days of the colony, and it is not until 1608 that we find any record of female influence or even presence. At this time, Captain Newport, who had brought from England the first fleet and in whose honor Newport News, originally Newport Ness, was named, made his reappearance with a number of fresh settlers, among them being Mistress Forrest and her maid Anne Burrus, by name, who was shortly afterward wedded to Master John Layden, and thus won for herself fame as the first woman of English blood to be married on American soil. By this time, Jamestown had grown to have a population of more than 500 souls, of whom not more than 200 were fighting men, so that the proportion of women and children must have been far larger than might be supposed by those looking at the circumstances of colonization and existence. It must have taken a stout heart in a woman's breast to face the unknown dangers of the unknown world, and soon the women of the infant colony had need for all their bravery. There is no doubt that the women played a noble part in the terrible days that followed the Indian siege of Jamestown, the days which were afterward known as the starving time. Not more than sixty of the original five hundred souls remained at the end of that period, and its record presents the probably unique account of women of the higher civilizations descending to the horrors of cannibalism, the common kettle, at last containing the bodies of Indians and even of kinsmen. Indeed, there was one foul deed of that time wherein a woman was directly concerned, though as a victim, not a principal. A colonist killed his wife and had eaten part of her body before he was discovered. 
he was burned alive, but those who punished him for his crime looked fearfully forward to the day when their own temptations might become too strong. At last came succor, and there seems to be for us assurance of the temper and mettle of the woman of that time, when we find that of the sixty survivors a fair proportion was of the weaker sex. There were children also, witnesses to the devotion of their mothers in their care. The colony was abandoned, but only for three days, and then began the time of uninterrupted English dominance. There is, however, in its history, nothing of importance to our subject until we reach 1621, very near the limit which has been set as the end of the period of settlement. At this time there occurred an event so peculiar and so far-reaching in its social results, and withal so intimately connected with the general, though not the particular, chronicle of woman in the early colonies, that it may be set forth in some fullness, even though it was one that does not give us any instance of feminine development. But it was so typical of its time, and so ominous of the mothers that moulded the characters of the native-born pioneers in the southern elements, that it has its legitimate place in a history of American women. That event is the coming of the maids, as they were called in the old chronicle, from which we draw most of our knowledge concerning the early settlers of Virginia. Sir Edwin Sandys, being at the head of the London Company, in whose hands were now the interests of the Virginia plantations, devised the plan of sending out his wives to the Virginia adventurers, a number of respectable young women. It is probable that Sandys was instigated by the thought of the dangers of mixed marriages with the Indians, which were apt to result from the paucity of women of Caucasian race, for many young men had of late been tempted to try their fortunes in the New World, and the proportion of women had failed among the settlers. Sandys was in every way a believer in vigorous immigration, and in one year he sent out one thousand two hundred and sixty-one new settlers. These he was desirous of attaching to the soil of their new country, a thing that could be done only by aiding them there to establish a home. So he secured a cargo of young women, ninety in number, who were willing to go to a far land in search of husbands. Whether he had great difficulty in finding such women, or whether matrimony is a prospect, even though with an indeterminate partner, was so attractive to the average spinster of the day as to make her eager to embrace any opportunity which held certainty of result, cannot be known. But the maids went, though under somewhat peculiar and even, to modernize, degrading conditions. For the thrifty company was not minded that the prospective husbands should have their wives as free gifts, no, they must pay for them as for any other chattel, and the price fixed was one hundred and twenty pounds of tobacco each, the value of this amount of the weed being about eighty dollars at present values. One would think that, if the matter was to be one of barter, the company might have set a higher price upon a wife, 
even if only out of compliment to the sex but doubtless the company knew the true value of the goods which it purveyed it must be admitted that the worshipful company notwithstanding its parsimonious spirit in the matter of end acted in good faith with both prospective husbands and present maids it had already made many regulations intended to promote matrimony by distinguishing in favor of married men and in the selection and care of the feminine cargo exported it took the utmost precautions to ensure the purity of the women offered as wives moreover the maids were carefully guarded from imposition or force orders were straightly given that in case they cannot be presently married we desire that they may be put with several householders that have wives until they can be supplied with husbands we desire that marriage be free according to nature and we would not have these maids deceived and married to servants but only such freemen and tenants as have means to maintain them not enforcing them to marry against their wills however there was very little need for these precautions since the men of the settlement flocked in crowds to the sale of the ladies and the only difficulty was that there were more suitors than there were fair ones to make them happy the scene presented must have been very much like that to be found at the old hiring fairs of england and there does not seem to have been more embarrassment on the part of the maids while their charms were being appraised by their suitors than if they had been merely disposing of their services for a short time and in menial capacity it is impossible to suppose that women who would seek matrimony under such circumstances were of a very refined type but on the other hand they must have been possessed of bravery and independence beyond the common lot of women of whatever class later sixty other maids young handsome and chaste according to the chronicle were induced to come out to the colony under the same conditions and these and their predecessors were among the founders of the race which developed into the soldiers of the revolution and of yet the more terrible struggle of later years unfortunately there were at this time introduced into the young colony two elements that were to affect it one slightly and temporarily only the other profoundly and for as long as there was in the south a distinctiveness of culture these were the practice of sending criminals to virginia and the introduction of slavery to the first number of settlers sent over by sandys james i added one hundred felons and this was by no means the last shipload of criminals to be exported to the virginias these criminals included both men and women and their introduction among the colonists though on the pretense of their being indented servants was an evil which for long found results in the lower strata of the growing civilization the women generally of the lowest dregs of english life were not political convicts who were of course of entirely different stamp were hired by the more dissolute of the unmarried male colonists and became openly their mistresses and thus there came into existence a social element which was to do important if insidious work in the undermining of the older morals of the settlement 
slavery however was a far more important and affected all the future civilization in august sixteen nineteen twenty negroes were sold as slaves to some of the planters the blacks having been brought by a dutch ship this was the rise of the african cloud as yet no bigger than a man's hand but in time to grow to most portentous dimensions and to bear the whirlwind as its legitimate progeny it may be questioned why note is made of the rise of slavery in a book devoted to the history of women but to those who will trouble to think the reason is evident the woman is always at once a formative cause and a product of her civilization and the civilization of the south was built upon the institution of slavery to comprehend the culture even the nature of the southern lady we must keep constantly in mind the influence of the national institution so that as its effects will have to be frequently noted in the future it is not amiss to chronicle here the small root which afterwards spread to such upwards growth turning to matters more immediately of the time with which we are at present concerned a proclamation of governor wyatt issued shortly before the fall of the virginia company and the consequent beginning of the real colonial period is worthy of note as bearing upon the universal story of women though including men as well as women in its provisions the proclamation was aimed chiefly at the latter and its intent was the breaking up of the seemingly common habit of becoming engaged to more than one person at a time a man was to be whipped for doing so vile an action though a woman might escape with a fine the worthy governor forbade women to contract themselves to two several men at one time for the reason that women are yet scarce and in much request and this offence has become very common whereby great disquiet has arisen between parties and no small trouble to the government it was further proclaimed that every minister should give notice in his church that what man or woman soever should use any word or speech tending to a contract of marriage to two several persons at one time as might entangle or breed scruples in their consciences should for such their offence either undergo corporal correction or be punished by fine or otherwise according to the quality of the person so offending such a regulation would not be popular nowadays but coquetry seems to have been of more serious moment then that flirtation should threaten the government itself suggests a singular state of affairs indeed it is now time to turn to a consideration of another settlement the only one that rivaled that of virginia in effectiveness of result and continuity for the settlements in new york new jersey pennsylvania and others with one exception to be reserved for later brief consideration did not continue the civilization which they established but took their latter culture that which survives from the more prepotent colonies of virginia and new england therefore they do not enter into our present inquiry 
since they produced no feminine type or even individual of note. It is to the more northern and southern settlements that we must look for the foundations and matrices of American femininity. We have glanced at that of the South. Let us glean what we may of the story of the women in that of the North. End of chapter 4, part A.